Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. I want to start off today by asking a couple of questions to get us thinking along the lines of what God wants to share with us today. How many of you got some good news this last week? Oh, man, we need to pray. Oh, good. Your hands are slipping up better now. Okay. I mean, it may not have been phenomenal news, but just some kind of good news, right? How many of you got some bad news this last week? Yeah, I got a little bit of that. I had a sore tooth, went to the dentist. They said I need a root canal and a crown. It's going to cost me about two and a half thousand dollars. It's not the worst news, though. Things can be a lot worse. You know, really, life is made up of a mixture, isn't it? You know, as long as we live in this sinful, fallen world, there are going to be things that come our way that we would categorize as bad news. But you know what? If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, our hope and our trust is in Him, we have good news no matter what we face. Although we do like that extra good news. You know, when you get that check in the mail you're not expected, that actually is a real check, not just a sales gimmick to get you to come buy a new car. We like good news. We don't really care for bad news. But I'm sure that many of you, like me, have certain things that you hope for, that you dream about, that you pray for, that when it happens, it will be tremendously good news. But yet we wait. We wait. It may be that a loved one would finally come to know Jesus Christ. It may be that we're in a process to get to the next stage of life, and it's tough, and we know that once we get there, it's going to be good news. And so we're waiting for that good news and doing what we need to do to see that come about, but we can't wait to hear that good news. In a very temporary sort of situation, our daughter and granddaughter were here this last week to visit with us for spring break. And then they drove back Friday most of the way and then Saturday the rest of the way. And when we finally got the news they were home safe, that was good news. So sometimes, many times, we have to wait for good news. And that is the situation we're going to find ourselves in the story we're going to look at in Luke chapter 4. We're going to see that Jesus is getting ready to proclaim some good news. We have been working our way through the gospel of Luke with this series called the story of Jesus. We've covered the first three chapters and a little bit into chapter four. And today the title of our message is Jesus proclaims good news. Jesus proclaims good news. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter four verses 14 to 30. The background real quick in case you haven't been here, you haven't been keeping up with it. From the very beginning of Luke, it starts out with God preparing the way for Jesus to come. By preparing the way for John the Baptist to be born. And so you have that whole thing where the angel shows up to John the Baptist's father in the temple and says, Hey, God's answered your prayers for the people of Israel, but also your own personal prayers. You're going to have a son. And he was way too old to have a son, and so was his wife. But God miraculously allowed that to happen and he became that child, that son was John the Baptist. The one God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. About the same time, actually a couple months later, the angel shows up to Mary 
and says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a special son. God's the one that's going to bring it about because she said, how can that happen? I'm not even married. I've never been with a man. And the intent here is that she's a godly woman. She's not going to be. And the angel says, God's going to bring it about. And this one is going to be a holy one. It's going to be the son of God. And of course, Jesus. And you have the whole story of that developing and then the unusual circumstances of the birth, the travel to Bethlehem, the birth in a stable, Jesus laid in a manger, the shepherds, the angels. And then you have no account until Jesus is about 12. And he and his family are in Jerusalem for a great festival. And Jesus is in the temple astounding the religious leaders with his understanding and insight into the word of God. And then you have nothing else for another 18 years or so. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene ready to fulfill his purpose, to prepare the way for Jesus, telling people that God is getting ready to break into history, to establish his kingdom, to do great things, and they need to get ready. And what they need to do to get ready is to repent of their sin and surrender their lives to God. And he baptizes people who make that decision, who repent of their sins as a symbol that their sins have been washed away. And then as John is doing this ministry, one day Jesus shows up in public. And Jesus says, baptize me, John. John says, I should be baptized by you. You shouldn't be baptized by me. Matthew tells us that Jesus says this is necessary to fulfill God's plan, to fulfill all righteousness is the way he puts it. So Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of that water, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him to anoint him, to fill him. And it, the, the, the physical representation of it was something like a dove that came down out of the sky. And as that happened, God the Father spoke from heaven, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was anointed to begin his ministry. But before it officially began, the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And we looked at that recently. And Jesus came through that testing victorious. Victorious over temptation and having been kept strong through the testing. And that's where we pick up the story today. In Luke chapter 4, verse 15, or verse 14. The first couple of verses here gives an overview of Jesus's ministry as it begins. Look at verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned, returned from the wilderness, returned from his time of testing, returned from his time of temptation. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. Galilee is northern Israel. This is where Jesus spent most of his time ministering to people. Although from time to time he'd go to southern Israel where Jerusalem was and do things in Jerusalem. It says a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. We don't have a lot of details yet about what he's saying and what he's doing, but it's getting people's attention. And it's circulating. The news is circulating. This man has shown up. There's something different. There's something special about him. Verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he's going around. He's going to the synagogues on the Sabbath, which is where the Jewish people would work, would meet once a week to worship God. Very interesting fact. Why do we do what we do in our services when we gather together? As we've gathered this morning, why did we have prayer? Why did we sing? Why do we look at God's word? And why do we have somebody explain of it and talk about it? Well, those are all good things. We could come up with some of those things logically. 
But you know why most churches, when they meet together for a, quote, service, will do those things? Because when the early church started, it came out of Judaism. And the Jewish people gathered together on the Sabbath to worship in the synagogue. That was the place where on the Sabbath they would gather together to worship. And then the rest of the week it was a school. It was also the community hub. It's where they'd have social events, all that kind of stuff. But when they gathered to worship in the synagogue, they would have prayer. They would have worship. They would read from the scriptures apart from the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and apart from the prophets, which would include pretty much the rest of it. And then someone would explain what had been read. Someone would give some kind of a word. They didn't have a preacher, pastor type person whose official role was to proclaim the word and explain it and teach it and preach it. They had a number of people in the synagogue who could take that place. They would give different people opportunities so they could learn and grow and develop. But anytime there was a traveling rabbi, you've heard that word before, it just means teacher. Someone who knew about God's word, someone who'd studied it and had an understanding. If you had someone that showed up in the synagogue and they knew God's word, you would invite them to be the one to share what they knew about the passage that was being read for that day. So Jesus would travel around. He would go to the synagogue on Saturday to worship. In fact, we're going to read in just a moment. It says that he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Can I tell you, I believe with all my heart that Jesus didn't just go to the synagogue because it was a place where he had a platform. It was a place where he could say what he wanted to say. I believe that Jesus went to the synagogue to worship God. And it was his custom. It was his custom. I just want to pause here to say I'm so glad to see so many of you back here today. And I'm so glad that many of you are able to join us online. And we have a number of reasons why people join us online. We have people that have been part of our church. They don't live here anymore. They have gone elsewhere. And it's good for them to be able to join with us on a Sunday morning. There's absolutely no way they could physically be here on a Sunday morning. We're so glad that we have the online ministry because there are times that people are sick. Because they're dealing with physical difficulty. And they can't get out and get around. And it's so good that they're able to join us in that format. Obviously, during COVID, it was tremendously wonderful that we had this way of communicating and connecting. And most of you experienced that because you couldn't be here because of safety concerns and all that kind of stuff. But can I just say, I'm glad for those of you that are here, but I want to say to those of you that are watching online, if there is a reason you really literally cannot be here because you don't live around here, because you're dealing with physical uh, health issues or some other factor that would keep you from being here. We understand that, and we're so glad you can join us this way. But if you're fine, if you get out and you go to the grocery store and you go to work and you do all those other things, but for some reason you're still hesitant about coming out and being in church, I want to encourage you to get beyond that because you know what? We need you, and you need us. Ah, oh, we're communicating this way. Yes, we are, but there's just something about being together with God's people. And not just for worship, but to do God's work. And so I just non-condemningly, but lovingly say, we want you to come back. We want you to come back. All right, so anyway, it says that Jesus, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. And, and so this description, this summary of his ministry emphasizes that he's doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that the news is spreading around and he's teaching. You know, so often we focus on the miracles because they're so phenomenal. God's doing stuff that doesn't normally happen. And they are. Can I tell you, though, that when Jesus did the miracles, he did it to meet people's needs because he loved people and he had compassion for them. But the word of God said it, it, it served an extra purpose that was actually much more important. It was to draw attention to Jesus and his teaching and to confirm that what he was saying and doing was from God. Okay? Sometimes we kind of give more attention to the miraculous than we do to the teaching, but the teaching is so important. Sometimes we give so much attention to the experiences that we can and want to have, and those experiences are wonderful that we don't give the attention that we should to the teaching. But the foundation of Jesus' ministry and the foundation of his work was his teaching. And it said as a result of that, the word got around and it says that he was being glorified by all. They were talking it up. They were talking good. This guy's something special. You got to go see him. We go on to the next section starting in verse 16 and we see an account of when he shows up in one of these particular synagogues and this particular synagogue is in Jesus' hometown. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and it comes time for him to show up in the synagogue in Nazareth. And this is where we see what we're talking about today, Jesus proclaiming good news. Let's read verses 16 to 21. It says, And he came to Nazareth when he had been brought up. And as was his custom, there's the thing I was mentioning before, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is all we have recorded about what Jesus said. He probably talked longer than this. He probably gave other explanation. As we look in just a moment at the people's reaction, it changes over a period of time. Mark says that when he was there, he did do a few miracles, but he didn't do very many because of their unbelief. It says that they invited him to read the passage from the prophets. So they'd already had their worship. They'd already had their prayer. They'd already had somebody read from the law. But Jesus, as hometown son, who has a name for himself, he knows God's word. He's been studying it. He's been teaching from it. And he's come home for the Sabbath. And he's invited to read and then to share from the reading in the prophets. And the prophet Isaiah is handed to him and it says that he stands to read. That's what they would do. They would stand when they read God's word and then they would sit down to preach or to teach. We don't do it that way. Sometimes I wish we did. You know, I get me a lazy boy up here. Not really. That would I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. I'd be difficult. But anyway, I'm fine with standing. That's the way they did things. We're going to come back to that passage because that's really the focus of what we want to spend most of our time today. But let's jump on down then to the next part because we talk, we see here the, the response of the people after he read this passage and said, today, this scripture is being fulfilled right here, today, in your presence. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. And all spelt, spoke well of him 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So here, the initial response is very positive. It's like, hey, Jesus grew up to be a fine young man, didn't he? Boy, he really knows God's word. You know, they're, they're kind of marveling like, you know, he was a carpenter. And, and look at look at him explain. Listen to him explain God's word. His words are so gracious. He was a good speaker. And then he goes on and says, and, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And we don't really know why they're saying that. They could be saying that and it could be a mixture of, of amazement like, wow, is it, this is Joseph's son. He grew up as a carpenter. I'll look at him. Or it could be like, what does he think he knows? He's just Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. What's he doing? We're not real sure, but for some reason about this time, there's a little bit of a shift. At first, the attitude, the response is positive, but now it's turning negative. In fact, he's going to say some things. We'll read that in just a moment. But but jump down to verse 28. After Jesus says some things, it says, when they heard these things that he said, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. In other words, they have gone from what started as a positive response to his teaching to a kind of a questioning like, uh, you know, he's only Joseph's son. He's only a carpenter. To now they are angry. They are upset. And I mean really upset because look what happens. Verse 29. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill him. Because of what he said. But passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know if this was a miraculous event where God, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, prevented them from doing it, or just his presence, his authority, caused them to stop. He walked right through the midst of them and went away. It's the last story we have, last account we ever have of him going to Nazareth. The people of his own village rejected him. And so he never came back. The whole message there too. Time is short. Take advantage of the opportunity we have to respond to what God wants to do in our lives. What was it that Jesus said? What got him so upset? What got him so ticked off? We'll go back up to verse 23. We'll look at that. After they said they had an initial positive response, but isn't this Joseph's son? Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And it's right after that they said they were so upset, they were, when Jesus said this, they got so angry they wanted to kill him. What is Jesus trying to say? There's a number of things here. He quotes a proverb that we're not real sure exactly what the specific meaning was. You might say to me, physician, heal yourself. And the other comments are there. Basically what he's communicating is that, okay, you're gonna say, you're saying to me, prove it. When he had read this passage saying, God is getting ready to do this great work. And these people had heard rumors and stories of what Jesus had done in the other places he'd visited. And specifically in Capernaum, where Jesus is going to make his headquarters. And basically they were saying, well, Jesus, that's all in good, but just prove it. You're only Joseph's son. In other words, they, were, they didn't have any faith. 
They weren't exhibiting any faith. They were not responding to what God was trying to tell them in a positive way. It's like, you're just Jesus. We saw you grow up. There may have even been older ladies in the synagogue say, I changed your diaper. Any of you had somebody say that about you, you know, when you got older and nobody wants to admit it. That's okay. We saw you when you were a little kid. You're just a carpenter. All these things, prove it. Prove it. And then Jesus refers to these two stories out of the Old Testament to demonstrate that he realizes they don't have faith. He talks about Elijah. And there was a great famine and a drought for three and a half years. And you go back to the Old Testament, you read the story. This is God's people, and they had been so rebellious against God. They had been so ungodly and were worshiping other idols that God sent the drought, that God sent the famine to discipline them, and they didn't have faith enough to even turn back to God and say, God, help us. And so the prophet of that time, Elijah, God sent him out of the country to go minister to Gentiles. He says, you know what? There was a time in our history when our people were so rebellious and so ungodly that God's own messengers didn't minister to them. God sent them to other people. He's implying that's kind of how it is right here, right now. He said the same thing's true in the story from Elisha. Lots of lepers and in, in, in Elisha followed Elijah by a couple of years. He was his successor. Lots of lepers in Israel, but the people of Israel had so rejected God and his work in their lives and again, ungodly worshiping idols that God sent Elisha to try to draw them back to him. They refused to accept his message. So God sent him out of the country. Actually, he didn't send him out of the country. I got ahead of myself. God sent a Gentile into the country who was a leper to be healed, and God healed him. This is kind of a, a prelude, a kind of a looking ahead to the fact that this gospel, this good news that Jesus is going to proclaim and then fulfill by his death on the cross is going to be not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. But basically... What Jesus said came across as an insult. I don't know that he meant it as an insult. It was just the truth. He says, you have no faith. You, you, you hear this message and you don't rejoice. You don't respond. Instead, you said, ah, you're just Jesus. You're Joseph's son. You're just a carpenter. Prove it to us. He says, you're just like the Israelites of long ago who had no faith. And so God sent his messenger somewhere else. And they were very upset at being compared to Gentiles and being proclaimed as having no faith. And that's why what happened, happened. So that gives you the story that gives you the background. But I want to go back to that main section that I want us to spend most of our time on this morning. This idea of Jesus proclaiming good news because it's here in Nazareth, not some other synagogue that we have recorded what he said, not only in Luke, but in some of the other Gospels, because this is kind of the beginning, the inauguration, uh, you know, the main message that Jesus is trying to get across, that God is on the move. He's beginning to do his work, and it's through me. So let's take a look at what Jesus said and what it meant and what it means for us today. Jesus has handed the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have books back then. They were scrolls. And Isaiah is one of the prophets. And it says that Jesus found the place, whether that was the 
designated reading for the day, or that's the one Jesus chose. But he went to Isaiah 61. And he reads this. Let's, let's reread it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's interesting. He stops right in the middle of a verse. If you go to Isaiah 61, right after that statement, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it goes on to say, and to proclaim the coming judgment of God's wrath. He stopped there on purpose because it wasn't time for God's wrath yet. The full expression of God's wrath upon sin is still to come. But Jesus stopped there because he had only come at that time to fulfill the first part of the prophecy. He will come again to bring judgment on sin and injustice and oppression and set up his kingdom in the world. But he wasn't, wasn't, he didn't come to do that at that time. In this prophecy that Jesus says applies to him, there's two different areas I want to look at. The first one is this. Jesus is calling and anointing. Jesus is calling and anointing. We've been studying this over the last couple of weeks, how God had prepared Jesus and anointed him and got him ready for this public ministry. But here we have the actual proclamation. In verse 18, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is Jesus' calling. And he's been anointed to do so. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We've mentioned that the role of the Holy Spirit is a key theme in the Gospel of Luke and in the book he wrote to follow that, the book of Acts. We see that the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus being conceived in his mother's womb. We see the Holy Spirit coming down upon him as he's baptized. We see that once he's baptized, he is empowered by the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It talks about him being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. In fact, the verses we read just a moment ago, that summary, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him and within him to anoint him to do the work that God had called him to do. Now, we'd expect that of Jesus. But can I tell you that God wants to do the same thing in and through us? You see, the Holy Spirit, that anointing, would only come upon certain individuals in history past before Jesus. Ones that God had chosen for a specific task, a specific purpose, and He would send His Holy Spirit upon them to give them that presence, that power, what they needed to do that task. It was often a king or a prophet or a judge, some other ruler, some other leader of the people. But you know, when John the Baptist was talking about Jesus, he said... You know, I baptize with water, but the one that's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the idea being that there would come a day when God's Spirit would dwell within all of his people. In fact, the Jewish people were looking forward to that. Ezekiel had a prophecy about it. Jeremiah had a prophecy about it. Where God spoke and said, one day I'm going to put my Spirit in every single one of my people. And it happened on the day of Pentecost. 
In fact, on that day when the Holy Spirit came and filled God's people, the believers that were gathered together, Peter got up to preach. And as part of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, When God deals with your heart, and you repent of your sins, and you come to God, Jesus is your Savior, God puts His Spirit within you. And you don't have to doubt whether or not that's true or whether that's true for you or not, because Peter goes on to say, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And it's not the main focus of our message today, but I want to challenge each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus to walk in the fullness of God's Spirit. I didn't put it in the PowerPoint, but Paul wrote in Ephesians, I think it was 5, be filled with the Spirit. And the word that is used here, constantly filled. And it was constantly seeking God's presence and power in our lives. And I want to challenge you Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus is your Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It may be something you sense, it may not. Most of the time you probably will not sense it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But that you daily seek God for the presence and power of His Holy Spirit. But can I tell you, the reason He put His Holy Spirit in us is not so we can have some real exciting experience, although we have those sometimes. Not so we can somehow sense God's presence from time to time, although that happens sometimes. But Jesus told that he was going to send the Holy Spirit so that we would have the power we need to be witnesses for him. And that's not just so we can speak up and share the truth, but it's so we can live the life that's a witness. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit is to give us boldness and and that kind of thing, to, 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 to proclaim and to share his truth when we have the opportunity, but it's also to live the life he calls us to live, a life of victory that in and of itself becomes a testimony and becomes a witness to others. We need the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. And many times we don't, I didn't plan to take this much time here, but maybe some of us need to hear this. We many times do not experience the victory that we need because we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not depending upon the power He makes available to us. We find ourselves overwhelmed by problems, by current concerns, by worries, by fears because we're not by faith trusting in the promises of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life every day. Every day. So Jesus, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The second part, because he has anointed me. The Holy Spirit come upon him was anointing. In the Old Testament, when someone was anointed, to be anointed basically means to be set apart and prepared for something in particular. The priests were anointed to do the work that God called them to do. Kings were anointed to be the king. You know, leaders were anointed to be the leader. And it was demonstrated by, by uh, pouring oil on them. That oil was a symbol of God's presence and power. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was his anointing. He had been set apart and prepared for something particular, the, the work that God called him to do. We've said many times that we refer to Jesus Christ, and Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's the Greek form of Messiah, the one the Jewish people were looking for. And those two words, Christ and Messiah, both mean the anointed one. The one that God set apart to come and do something special. And the third part of this is to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim, very simply, means to preach, to announce, to 
proclaim the good news. Uh, that's what the word gospel means. It literally means good news. And in general, it just means a good or joyful message, glad tidings. Of course, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news that we can have salvation from our sins through Jesus Christ. We can have a relationship with God as we turn to Him. But it says to proclaim good news to the poor. Is the good news only for the poor? You know, if the good news was only for the poor, that would rule all of us out. And you say, Pastor, I don't know, I feel pretty poor sometimes. I understand. But that's only true if you compare yourself to somebody else. I've said this so many times. We are richer than more than 95% of the world. And we have more stuff. You know, the poorest person, however you want to define that, the poorest person among us has more stuff than most everybody that lived during the time of Jesus. You know, they went through life with just enough to eat every day, some shelter over their head, and maybe one change of clothing. Pretty much it. And they lived from day to day. We would be considered ultra-rich to them. So is this good news only for the poor? Well, it's true that Jesus did minister to the poor. In fact, it seems like many and most of the people that were drawn to Jesus were the poor. Why is that? Because the poor recognize their needs. They're right there in front of them and they have nowhere else to turn. Whether they're financially strapped, they got physical difficulties and no means of getting it taken care of, they're homeless. But Jesus did minister to everybody else too. I mean, he ministered to and even called some middle-class fishermen to be his disciples. He ministered to the wealthy, including tax collectors, some of whom he called to be his disciples. But you know what? The poor were often more receptive to Jesus because they recognized their need. In fact, when the Bible talks about the poor that God wants to touch, he does talk about those who are financially poor, and he certainly did do that and still continues to do that. But even more so, he's talking about the spiritually poor. He's talking about the people that in their spirit, no matter how much money, possessions, or material things they have, that they recognize, I am in need. And if I do have money and things, it can't meet my need. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about those humble enough to admit they need help. It doesn't matter what you own, how much money's in your bank account, the kind of house you live in, the kind of car you drive, how many changes of clothing you have and how nice they look, any of that stuff. But do you recognize that you need Jesus and that you need what God has to offer? And that even though some of those things can relieve some pain and suffering and bring some pleasure and satisfaction for some time, they will never ultimately satisfy because they don't meet us at the point of our deepest needs on the inside. And so that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. I have been anointed. You know, the Holy Spirit's upon me. I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim good news for people that realize they don't have what they need and they don't know where to turn to. Do you recognize that you don't have what you need and you don't know where to turn? That's why Jesus came. He was announcing the good news that he could and would meet the needs of anyone who'd be willing to admit that they need help. And he demonstrated that all through his ministry. And he did it in the physical realm, but most importantly, he did it in the spiritual realm. So what is this good news? We see that in Jesus' message and ministry as it was prophesied by Isaiah in verses 18 to 19. 
First of all, Jesus has good news for those who are bound. Jesus has good news for those who are bound. In verse 18, he says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He sent me to preach good news. This, there's freedom, deliverance, there's liberty for those who are captive, for those who are prisoners. And the good news is ultimately a proclamation of freedom from the bondages of Satan. I don't know if you have noticed, but so many of the songs that we sing in worship are about freedom, about being set free, about breakthrough like we sang this morning. Breakthrough being that we're confined in some way. Jesus brings victory. Jesus brings freedom. Jesus brings breakthrough. The good news for those who are bound. In the companion book to Luke, which is Acts, Luke wrote both of, both of them, and Acts picks up where Luke stops. The story of the early church. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching in Cornelius' house. And he, in his introduction, he talks about Jesus. And he says, you've heard this, but... This is what we know about Jesus in Acts 10, 38. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. See, that's all the stuff we've been talking about this morning. God anointed him, set him aside, with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. Jesus has good news for those who are bound. We see it in his ministry with those who are bound physically. There's a great story we'll get to eventually in Luke. In Luke chapter 13, Verses 10 to 17 about a woman who is all crippled up and bowed over and has been, I think it was for 18 years. I didn't go back and uh, look at that specific detail. And in this case, it's not every case, but in this case, her physical ailment is being caused by a spiritual presence, an evil spiritual presence, a demon. Luke is not at all trying to say that all sickness is caused by demons. Some is, some are. Get my grammar right. Some aren't. But in this case, the woman, a demon somehow had had some kind of physical impact on her to where she had this major physical problem and Jesus set her free. Set her free from her bondage. Of course, the religious leaders got all upset because they did it on the Sabbath. Whole other issue, we'll talk about that a number of times going through Luke. But it's not just physical bondage, but spiritual bondage. There's another great story we'll get to in a little bit. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 35, about a man who had been possessed by a legion of demons had basically gone crazy, lived in the tomb, stripped himself naked, would hurt himself. The people had tried to lock him up for his own good and chain him. He'd break through the chains. Jesus set him free. Jesus set him free. The picture we have from Isaiah and going into Jesus' ministry is people who are desperate, that are in bondage because at some point they've rejected God. They've rejected His plan. They've rejected His purpose. For those of us, I mean, for us as human beings, that's our life before Christ. Living without Him. We're in bondage. You know, it's interesting because sometimes people try to find freedom by rejecting God. Maybe you experience that in your own life. I don't want anything to do with God because He's trying to spoil my fun. He's given me all these rules and regulations and they go against what I want to do. And I know I'm going to have fun. So I'm going to reject God. I'm going to reject His rules. I'm going to reject His principles. I'm going to reject His way of life. And I'm going to do my own thing because I want freedom. And you know where that life leads? 
to bondage. In the physical realm, it leads it to bondage to life-controlling substances, to addictions, not just physical addictions, but mental and emotional addictions, especially in the area of our sexuality when we get outside God's bounds. Most of the time, when people pursue freedom apart from God, they end up being tremendously bound. Tremendously bound. You see, God's the one that offers the true freedom. We talked about this last week. When we choose to live the way God says we should live, he says that because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. Yes, we have to say no to things that we'd like to do. Yes, we have to say yes to things we'd rather not do. But ultimately, it's for our own good and it leads to freedom. Jesus brings freedom. John 8, 36, it says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Can I tell you, in a little bit, we're going to conclude this service and I'm going to open up the front of the sanctuary. I'm going to invite all of you to come to be touched by God today. And maybe some of you need to be set free. Maybe some of you are bound up with things. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Some of you may not be. I'm not saying you're demon-possessed at all. I'm not saying you're involved in some terrible sin, but can I tell you that sometimes we need to be set free of bondage. It's not just some big sin in our life, but it's, it, it's, we're bound to a specific temptation we're so struggling to overcome. We're bound to anger. We're bound to unforgiveness. We're bound to bitterness. We're bound to hatred. We don't like it. Can I tell you, Jesus brings freedom. Jesus brings freedom. Do you want to be free today? Not only did Jesus bring good news for those who are bound, but Jesus has good news for those who are blind. Jesus has good news for those who are blind. Same verse, verse 18. He has sent me to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. And we certainly see that in the physical realm. Jesus healed a number of blind people during his ministry. What's really interesting is that in the Old Testament, the healing of the blind was specifically mentioned as a sign of the coming of the Messiah, along with many other things. And we don't have an account of anybody else in Scripture being healed of blindness until Jesus shows up. So that really got people's attention. In Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, you have the story of blind Bartimaeus outside Jericho. In John chapter 9, I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint, we have the story of the blind man in Jerusalem that Jesus healed a number of blind people that he healed. We're going to see some in Mark as we work our way through. And, and that's significant. Blindness is something that's very difficult to deal with. But can I tell you, most of us have never dealt with or will deal with physical blindness, but yet we've dealt with and may deal with spiritual blindness. And Jesus came with good news for those that are spiritual, spiritually blind. In fact, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that without Christ or before Christ... The God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, without Christ, we are blinded to spiritual realities. God reaches out to us. His Holy Spirit speaks to us. We need to respond. But when we respond, Jesus will heal our blindness. But can I tell you that sometimes even those of us that are believers can deal with blindness because we're blind to ourselves. Now, none of us thinks we're blind to ourselves, but we know plenty of other people that are, right? I mean, haven't you seen somebody that did something, said something or whatever, 
And they may even say, you know, I would never do that. That's not. They say, can't they see that in their life? Can't they see they've got that problem? Can't they see they've got that issue? And the response is, well, they're just blind to themselves. It makes me wonder, what am I blind to of myself? My wife and I talk about that on a regular basis. And we want to say nothing. I don't see anything. Of course we don't. That's because we're blind to ourselves. And can I just say in a very practical, maybe simpler way that we can say, God, open my eyes. I mean, we should be praying, God, open my eyes to your word. Open my eyes to what you're trying to do in my life. Open your eyes to what you want me to respond to. Open your eyes to what you want me to do. But can I say, add to your prayer, Lord, open to your, my eyes to what I'm blind to in my own life that really needs to be dealt with and I'm ignoring it or I'm not dealing with it because I don't even realize it's there. Jesus has good news for the blind. Do you want to see? Come to Jesus. And the third thing is Jesus has good news for those who are broken and bruised. Verse 18, again. He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set at liberty means to release, to heal, to set free. Those that are oppressed, those that are brokenhearted, those that are bruised, those are all connotations of the words that are used there. The oppressed. One commentator put it this way, the people that are downtrodden, crushed by life, broken in pieces. Oppressed by sin, sorrow, worry, hurts, burdens. You know, we can have that without Christ and we can have that when we are with Christ as believers. Jesus has good news to those of us that are broken and bruised. And we've all been there. We all may be there right now. Just stop for a moment and think, in what way, in what area of my life have I been broken? In what area of my life have I been bruised? And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all sinful either. I think back to the prayer that I prayed a little while ago at the end of worship, and God just laid it on my heart to those that have lost loved ones in the last couple of years, many times to COVID, sometimes to other things. And those of us that love them, we love them, we feel, we care, but we go on about everyday life. And and when we think about it, we know it's important and we may encourage them and we pray for them, but it doesn't affect us like it affects them, like it affects you if you're one of them. It's hard to get beyond that. Life, death, his crust, his broken, his bruised. Other people have said words. They've done things. People at school, people at work, people in our family. And it's hurt us. It's hard. We're broken. We're bruised. Jesus, that's one of the things I came to take care of. I've come I've come to set you at liberty. I want you to know something. The other ones that says he came to proclaim it. This time he doesn't say I came to proclaim that there's liberty. He says I came to do it. Now he came to do the other part too. I'm just saying he's emphasizing this. I came to set at liberty. Can I tell you that if you're here today, if you're online and you are in pain inside and maybe nobody else knows about it, you don't want to share with anybody else. You've been hurt. You've been broken. You've been bruised. Jesus wants to touch you. Jesus wants to help you with that. And he will. He will. The Bible says over and over, Jesus had compassion on people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. His people of that day had been abused by Satan. They'd been abused politically by the Romans. They'd been abused spiritually by their religious leaders. They'd been abused by other people in their lives. And he said, I've come 
to help you with the hurt and with the pain. And Jesus understands. He was broken and bruised. He was broken and bruised physically, not up to this point yet, but he knew it was coming. Much worse than probably most of us will ever be broken and bruised physically. Even though he was God come in the flesh, he was rejected. He was ignored by his family. I say ignored. His calling and who he was was ignored by many of his family members. There's an episode in the Gospels where his mother and his brothers show up to take him home because they think he's gone crazy and he needs some time away. He's got to settle down and get his head straight. He was rejected by probably just as many, if not more people than those that accepted him. People plotting against him, people plotting his death, people saying hateful and harsh things to him. Maybe we sometimes think that, well, he was God in the flesh, so it probably didn't affect him that much. Why? He was also human. Jesus was broken and was bruised. He understands what we're going through. We read last week, we talked about his temptation from Hebrews where it says he understands what we're facing because he's been through it himself. I like what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, you're weighed down. You're broken. You're bruised. You got Life is rough. Life is beating you up. Come to me. I'm going to help you with it. There is a yoke. There are things we got to adjust to but it's not near as hard as what the world offers. Jesus wants to heal those broken and bruised by sin. To set at liberty, not just proclaim liberty, and he wants to help those of us that are broken in other ways. He wraps it all up in verse 19 with that quote from Isaiah to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's kind of the summary. That statement actually refers back to an event in Leviticus, I forgot to write down the chapter name. It's called the Year of Jubilee. Have you heard about that? We don't know whether it was ever practiced in Israel, but God had told them when they entered the promised land that every 50th year, every slave was to go free, every debt was to be canceled, every piece of property that had to be sold out of the family or whatever was to be given back to them with no strings attached. In other words, we're going to have this massive reset every 50 years. Like I said, there's no indication that they ever really did that. God told them to. But that's basically what that's talking about. Jesus says, I've come to institute the year of Jubilee. Freedom. Freedom. A great reset. A canceling of spiritual debt and a new beginning. And the most foundational way that that applies is in our lives to have our sins canceled. That's what salvation is, all, salvation is all about. That's what Jesus came for. You see, all the things he's talking about, he has accomplished in the spiritual realm. He will accomplish them in the physical realm. He does little bits and pieces here and there as we live our lives. But one day, he will set up God's kingdom and all sickness, sin, sorrow, and death will be done away with. All injustice and oppression will be stopped. But spiritually speaking, he came specifically to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Because the Bible makes it very clear that we are bound in sin. For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans. And he goes on to say, and the wages of sin is death. You could say the wages of sin is bondage away from God. 
spiritual death, eventually physical death. But the gift of God is eternal life, being set free from that bondage forever. Having a relationship with God that affects eternity, yes, but affects now too. Our sins forgiven. We receive that gift by coming to God, asking for forgiveness based on what Jesus has done, not what we can do, not because we think we're somehow worthy of it. We surrender our lives to Him. And if you're here today or you're watching online or watching or listening to this recording later and you do not have Jesus as your Savior, you have not taken that step of surrendering your life, of coming to Him for forgiveness based on what He's done, I challenge you to do that today, to receive that forgiveness from the bondage of sin. Pray that prayer. As we wrap this up, worship team, you can come. How do we apply this today? Just know that what Jesus proclaimed then, He still can do, and He still wants to do in our lives. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As I said, in just a couple of moments, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to open this area up and I'm going to invite you to come. If you need Jesus to touch you in any way, if you need Jesus as your Savior, if you need physical healing, if you need emotional healing, you need spiritual, whatever it might be, if you feel broken and crushed and weighed down by life and you just want to say, God, I need your touch, this area is going to be open for you to come and to pray. Say, well, do I have to come down there? No, you don't. But there's something about taking a step of faith. And I believe God honors any steps of faith that we take. Now, I'm not trying to say if you actually step out and come down here, God's obligated to do something special. I'm not saying if you stay back there, God's not. I'm just saying that when we put our bodies into action to line up with our spirits, say, God, here I am. I'm coming to you. I need you. God will come. But how do we apply this? Well, first of all, I just want to say this. This message that Jesus brought, this good news he proclaimed, we need to keep proclaiming it. You see, Jesus came and he fulfilled it on the cross and he went to heaven. But before he went, he says, now you guys need to take this message to the world. And that you guys includes us too. All of his followers throughout history. Marion Oaks Assembly of God is the church here in this community. Reaching out as far as we can reach and even around the world with missions. We need to proclaim this good news. We need to be active. That's one of the reasons we have missions Focus and missions convention because that's one way we can reach beyond our physical reach to touch people all over the world. And I challenge you and encourage you to be as involved as you can be in our missions convention starting this Saturday and make a commitment to missions, praying and giving to that. But you know what? Our mission as a church is to reach this area. Our vision statement says, says very specifically that we want to be a light shining in the darkness. Our mission statement says very specifically that we want to make disciples and help people be more fully devoted followers of Jesus. It means they got to become a follower first and then we got to grow in that. And that's what we're here, what we're all about. We need to proclaim this good news. But not only we as a church, but you as an individual. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, you're an ambassador for Christ. You're an emissary. You're, you're someone that God has called to, to share Jesus with your world. 
to care for your world, to pray for your world, to touch people's lives for Jesus in your world. But as we open this up and wrap things up, I just want to tell you that Jesus does offer you this good news today. Let's all stand together. And I want to invite you to come. If this message has spoken to you in any way, even if it hasn't, but you know what? I just need a touch of God today. I'm going to invite you to come even starting now. Worship team hasn't started singing yet. I'm not calling the prayer team forward now, although they're welcome to come later. You feel led to pray for somebody, you go ahead. But if you want or need a touch from God today for anything, it's not a sign of sin. It's not anything negative. I want to be touched by God today. Jesus brought good news. I'm glad that good news is still good news today. And I need God's touch. I invite you to come. As you come, I know I'm talking, but you can begin to just seek God. I'm going to come down. I'd love to pray with every single one. I don't know if I'll get around to everybody, but I'd love to pray with each one of you. Our elders may do the same thing. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're bound, blind, broken, or bruised by sin, and you are willing to be poor, in the sense you're willing to recognize, I have a need, God will change your life. But for those of us that are believers... We can still be bound sometimes. We can still be blind and broken and bruised, hurting. And God wants to touch us right where we are. Our worship team is going to sing a song. If you're not down here, you want to sing along, you do it. But let's just begin to ask God to touch us. And myself and our elders will go around. We'll pray with those of you. And just, But you know what? Don't depend on us. You just call it to God. God doesn't need us to touch you. But we're going to help you. Let's just seek him right now. I'm going to close our time together in prayer. And I just want to encourage you. If you came down, or maybe you chose not to come down, but you were praying in your seat very sincerely, saying, God, I need you to touch me. Some of you may have experienced something that you actually felt or experienced in some other way, and that's great, that's an assurance. But if you did not, please know that that's not required. Just know that as you reach out to God in faith and trust, He intervenes, and God's at work. Continue to seek him, believing that he's going to touch you and meet your need and work in your circumstances to bring about that which is what is good for you. It may not be look exactly like you'd like it to look, but God's at work and he will help you. Father God, we come to you today thankful for your goodness, thankful for the good news of salvation, first of all. But Lord, I thank you for the good news that you care about every aspect of our lives. You came to set us free from sin. But Lord, you also want to set us free from anything else the enemy is using to bind us up and to keep us from experiencing all the goodness you have for us. Lord, you've come to help us with the things that bring pain and brokenness. Father, help us with those things. And Father, I pray that as we go into our world this week, whether from this place or from wherever we are, that we would walk in the power of your spirit and that you would use us in our world, that you'd help us to walk in victory. And Father, we thank you that you make your presence and power available to us whenever we look to you. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, 
Go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.